All right, I'm wearing my reading glasses so I can see what I'm doing, but I can't see you very well, so I'll just uh, assume I know who's sitting where they're sitting, right? We're in a series on making disciples. We began with the foundation of grace and the dynamics of faith, hope, and love. We then looked at lordship and the struggle of the obedience against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We then considered the three great commandments, love for God, love for our neighbor, and love for one another. And in that context, we then looked at the details of those um, commandments. A little hay fever problem here. Um, so then we began to look at the primary spiritual disciplines. Obedience to the scriptures, approaching God in prayer, and self-denial through fasting. Today, uh, we're going to look at the first of these uh, in a little more detail, uh, obedience to the scriptures. We're going to begin with uh, James chapter 1, verse 21 to 27. So if you'll turn there. James uh, says these words, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in other words, we're not where we should be, right? We're coming from that, being transformed. He says, uh, in that context, humbly receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves, prove means demonstrate, yourselves uh, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he has uh, looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, it's referring to the Torah, um, and abides by it, not having become a, for, a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does, as the Psalms begin uh, to say. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, he's using the word religious here, not in the way we use it. We have a tendency to have a negative thought of religious. He's talking about someone who's really pious and really is spiritually mature. And yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. That man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress, that's doing good, and keeping oneself unstained by the world, that's holy. That's really what the religion is. The loving God is holiness, the loving our neighbor is goodness, the loving one another is unity, and that is the essence of our religion. So, we see in this text an admonition by James that we receive the implanted word. The word is the scriptures, uh, which brings salvation to our soul. When he says that, he's talking about our total being, both the inner man and the mind, which is born again by the spirit, the mind then transformed by the word, but also the body by resurrection when the resurrection takes place. So in some sense, while we are saved, we are also being saved, and in some sense, we will be saved. That process, and you'll see those tenses in several passages 
in the scriptures. So he says, uh, the word is to be implanted into us and we are to be doers. That result then is a true religion of behavior before God which conforms to holiness regarding the world and righteousness regarding other people, neighbor and fellow believers. And that includes that unity that we have as a disciple. So I'm going to discuss today the implantation of God's word in our hearts. The word heart, lieb, in Hebrew means heart and mind, the inner person. Um, And so we're going to talk about that and how we're to practice righteousness as a doer of the word. All that I'm going to talk about today regarding implanting the word, if it doesn't take root and have the fruit of behavior, it's meaningless. You can be a Bible scholar and be lost as a goose. I don't know what that phrase means, but it doesn't sound good, right? So the idea is that it's not those who hear the word, not those who talk about the word, not those who spend all their time hearing sermons, but those who are the doers of the word who are justified. So this implantation, the word to implant there, means a placing of something in a given place, to implant something. The biblical idea is the placing of seed in soil. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 4 real quickly. The passage that you know as the parable of the sower. I'm pretty sure that that James is thinking about this text, or this teaching, as they understood it. Chapter 4 of Mark, verse 13 to 20. He said to them, you don't understand the parable, he's just told it to them. Uh, He says, how will you understand all of the parables? So he says, the sower that sows, he sows the word. And then he says, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. He's talking about the hard ground. He says, the sower sows and when it fell on the hard ground... Uh, it, it, there was nothing there, just the seed sitting on the ground. It's not implanted. It's external. And so the birds come and eat the seed and that's it. And he says, Satan will take away the word if it's done superficially. It simply will not take root. Then he says, uh, in a similar way, These are the ones whom the seed is sown on rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, and they are only temporary then. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. These are the people that love the Bible, they love the scriptures, they love the stories, they love everything, as long as everything's going their way. But the minute the word requires something of them that they don't like, or the word requires people to persecute them, or the word is difficult and it's not practical, they immediately go the other way. And he says they are temporary. Now, many people who do this hide behind the doctrine of eternal security. It's not a safe place to hide. 
the scripture is very clear that Jesus said, at the judgment, many will come and say, Lord, we did this, we did this, and we did this in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why doesn't he know him? Because what they did was what they wanted to do for God, not what God commanded to be done. So if you do great, I, we get students all the time now at Cal Baptist. I want to do great things for God. I want to do great things for God. God doesn't need you to do great things for you. You will do great things if you follow God, but he'll work them out, right? He said, greater things that I do, you will do, because my Father and the Spirit will be with you, right? But if you decide, I'm going to do this great thing for God, that's not what he's asking. What he's asking is that we be faithful to a great God. There, then, when in our obedience, something good happens, and every good gift comes from the Father, but people will glorify our Father in heaven rather than glorify us because we did a great thing for God. So, these people fall away. They're temporary believers. That's why it's very dangerous to believe that just because somebody says the magic words and they get excited about Jesus, that they're saved. The issue is, let's watch the life. Let's see what happens. Then... He says, and, the, and others are the ones whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, if you really look carefully at the Greek, every word the first letter of every word of this verse says America. Actually, it doesn't. Would that, that sound great? That, that'd be a great sermon day. That's not true. But believe me, I can't read this without seeing American Christians. Because American Christians tend to have the attitude, I've got to get my financial security in place. I've got to get my career settled. I've got to get the things that need to be done done, and then I will follow God because I'll be ready to do that. And Jesus says, no, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added, for your Father knows you have need of them, right? So if you decide you're going to take care of all of that yourself, that's really nice. You've left God off the hook, and he'll let you do that. But what it does is it chokes the word. The word becomes ineffective in your life because you're busy doing all the things that the culture tells you you've got to do and then you throw Bible verses on it. And it really isn't a, a, a following of the Lord. Then he says, And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. In other words, it is implanted in them and begins to grow by the Spirit and the Word working together in your life so that what works out is a manifestation of God in you, which is the hope of glory. Now, notice he says, some bear 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Depending on our life, Depending on how far we're having to come in this process to maturity, we're not all going to be 100% uh, uh, fruitful. But we're going to be fruitful. And that's what's 
critical. The Spirit of God will ultimately bring about the fruit of the Spirit and maturity. And in that context, we will be productive in the Lord. So, the implanting of the Word is critical here. It can't just lay on the on the ground. It can't be kind of rubbed in a little bit. It can't be... Uh, uh, choked out by other things. It has to be implanted in the heart and in the mind to the point that it begins to alter and change us in obedience towards the Scriptures. Well, how is that done? Well, it's done, I believe, by four things. And I'm going to talk about those today. Don't have time to talk about the practical doing. We can talk about that in Q&A, but we talk about that a lot. I just want to remind you of how we get the word implanted so that the production can happen. First of all, we have to read the text. We have to read the scriptures. Secondly, we have to memorize the scriptures. Thirdly, we have to meditate on the scriptures. And fourth, we have to study them. That, those are the steps towards doing. Read the text. Memorize the text. That's the internalization. That's breaking the surface. Meditate on the text. That keeps it there and integrates it into who you are. And then studying the text, which is going into deeper and deeper understandings of what that text says as it connects to other, other texts in your life. So, let's look at those. Let's begin with reading. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13 is a fascinating text. First Timothy 4, 13. Paul says to Timothy, Until I come, give attendance to, and if you have an NASB it says, public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. Now the text only says, until I come, give attention to reading to exhortation and teaching. Now, uh, it's clear from the text and the context, and that's why the NASB does this, that this is talking about what we do every time we have a service. We always have a series of biblical texts that are read. They are read by members of the congregation, not not just read to you by the clergy. They're read by members of the congregation. They are tied into the music. They are tied into the prayers. They are tied into the liturgy of what we're doing. And that goes back a very long time. Paul's referring to the systematic reading of the scriptures in the congregation. He's using the word public there, not the way you and I would think public. He's not saying go stand on the freeway and read the scriptures. Private is what you do when you're by yourself. And public is what you do communal. It probably would be better to say the communal reading of the scriptures. Okay? Uh, the Torah and the prophets every Shabbat are taken out of the ark and they are read before the people. This goes all the way back to the time of Ezra when they built a wooden pulpit and they would 
pull out the the scriptures, read them to the people, and then explain them. So, reading, exhortation, and teaching. And in Judaism and Christianity, there are long systems of development of systematic reading of the scriptures in the hearing and the participation of the people with exhortation and teaching. That's what he's talking about. Now, the liturgy in the the Jewish synagogue is primarily based on the Torah. And then other scriptures in the Tanakh that connect to that are placed there. That's called the Haftorah. And so every Shabbat, there is a reading of the Torah. It begins at the beginning of the cycle. It's read throughout the year. At the end of the year, the entire Torah has been read. Uh, At the time of Jesus, they actually had a three-year version and a one-year version. And then the Haftorahs are read with it. And then you grow up with, in a sense, yearly going through that as a community, talking about it among yourselves and understanding it. That developed what the uh, what Judaism calls the Kumash, which is the Torah and half Torah readings in a little book where you have that because no one had the whole, no people didn't have their own Torah. The Torah was in the synagogue and it would be brought out and read in that way. So that's the tradition there. Christianity begins its service with the Gospels. And so a reading system developed in Christianity where it was based on the Gospels using the three-year notion that the Jews had. They simply went, one year will be Matthew, one year will be Luke, one year will be Mark and John. And there's a three-year system. We call it year A, B, and C. And you will read through the Gospels in those three years. And with them will be epistle readings And with them will be what they call Old Testament readings, which is the Torah and the half-Torah. And with that is a psalm. Every week, those traditions. The Eastern Church has a set of readings. The Western Church has a set of readings. And therefore, those are the ones that the vast majority of Jews, Eastern Christians and Western Christians are reading each week at the same time. So when Jesus went into the, the synagogue... And they opened the Isaiah scroll for him to read the Isaiah 61 passage that we know what day that was because we can look at the text and know what the Torah reading was for that day. Okay, That is why I have published on our private site, on our public site and on others, the readings for the week. And what I try to do is give you the Eastern Church readings for that Sunday and the Western Church readings for that Sunday. If there's a special reading during the week, I give you that. For example, today on there is the reading of Lamentations because yesterday was the fast for the destruction of the temples and other things that had happened. It was moved to today because fasting on Shabbat is not done in Judaism. So they moved it to today. So today would be the fast and the reading of Lamentations and those uh, scriptures. So I give you those. And then I give you the Sabbath scriptures as well. Now there are daily readings and you can get those. And there are a lot of phone apps that have all of these. I suggest you read with the people of God. 
It gives you and your children a sense of being connected to what people all over the world and historically have read. Read other texts if you want. I'm not stopping that. I'm just saying that our foundation of reading should be this gathered collective reading. You and I and all modern Jews have an advantage in that we have personal copies of the scriptures and we can access them daily for regular reading. And this is why I include the readings in the Facebook pages uh, and the DC newsletter each week. I recommend that you read these throughout the week, talk about them as family and community, and you can start and restart at any time because wherever you start you'll through the year, you'll just simply get back where you need to go. So, now I just said we have an advantage because we all have Bibles. Those Bibles are also a disadvantage. Because the tendency in modern Christianity, and I'm finding in modern Judaism, people don't do those regular readings. And what they do is, they really never get to the second stage, which is memorization. One of the reasons that going over them over and over again, that is what causes memorization, the implantation. So, I want you to turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119.11. And it's probably good that the, that the kids are in here today because they can remind the parents what to do, right? They always say, why are we doing this, right? Uh, so, Psalm 119.11. Uh, okay, what have I done here? Okay, I was in the wrong text. All right. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now, if you grew up as I did on the King James, then you know this verse if you memorized it. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I used to joke about that uh, with the Youth for Christ people in high school. Thy word have I hidden in my locker that I might not be forced to read it, right? You know, the, we, were, we were not too good at that. Okay? What does it mean to be hid in the heart? It means to place it in a special place of respect and treasuring. And that's why the NASB says treasured. The idea here is that we are to honor God's word enough to learn it, to memorize it. Why do you know people's names? You don't need to know their name. They can tell you who they are every time they see you. We learn the name because we treasure them, right? And we acknowledge them. And that's, that's what this is about. It's placing God's word in our heart. It means that we value it enough to keep it in a place where it will not be lost. So we are to place and implant and treasure God's word in our hearts so that we know what God's will and purpose is and we can follow him rather than miss the mark, which is what sin is. Right? There is no point to reading scripture if we forget it. That's what James has said. If you look at it like a mirror momentarily and then you go away, you forget what manner of person. You look at God's word, you go, woe is me for I am undone. I have unclean lips. You can just hear why he said the guy who doesn't bridle his tongue. I, I need to live more according to this. I have to... This has to somehow get in me so that when I walk away from the mirror, that thing is still going on inside me. That's implanting. 
right? So memorization is accomplished by reading out loud and by repetition. You know this if you're a reader. Uh, now, if you're reading novels, that's different. You can read a novel and remember it. But if you read anything else, it's very hard to remember it. What did that say? It was really good. I read something yesterday. It was really good. What did that say? I, right? You have to read it out loud. The scripture was always read out loud. Silent reading, the way you and I do it, is only about 200 years old. Prior to that, everything was... All, if someone was alone, they would read out loud. Why? Because they're looking at it, they're saying it, and they're hearing it. And if you do that multiple times, it will lock in and you will internalize. You will implant that word in your heart. So memorization is accomplished by reading out loud and repetition. We're losing the ability to memorize because we have cell phones and we can Google anything. And instant access to information. I still have trouble finding certain verses when I'm looking for them in the NASB because I started in the King James and I memorized so much in the King James that I, had, I have to Google the King James verse to find out what the address is so I can find it in the NASB, right? So that i got to work on that. The idea is that memorization of Scripture is important because Deuteronomy 6 and Colossians 3 tells us you shall write these words on your heart. They'll be on your mind. They'll be before your eyes. You will write them on your walls. You'll put them on your gates. You'll talk about them when you rise up and when you lay down. When you walk by the way, you're going to talk about them. In other words, they're going to permeate your communal life, your family life. And then in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, doing all that. Now, this issue of music is really critical. Another key way of memorizing is by uh, chant or music. Chuck Smith, you guys know who he is. Chuck Smith had the entire New Testament memorized in the King James uh, Bible. And when I first met him, uh, a few of us, because I was the age of his son, what we would do is we would start a verse and he would just go until we stopped him. So one day I couldn't take it anymore. And I said to him, how did you memorize that whole text? And he said, I put it to a, to a tune. Now, you know that. That's how we learn the ABCs, right? Sometimes you have to go, P, right? you got to do that. So that's, that's a way to do that. And there are ways of chanting the scriptures uh, to learn them. And there, those traditions are found in both Judaism and Christianity. Usually when the scriptures were read, they were chanted or sung. So that's really important to do. And I think that uh, we need to be aware of that. So Deuteronomy 6 is a good memorization text. The Great Commandments is a good memorization text. You should memorize the Ten Commandments. Uh, you should memorize the New Commandment. You should memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Aaronic Blessing. There are many, many texts that we need to memorize in context and speak them over and over to one another. Memorize verses that directly speak to you and the struggles of your life. Uh, be careful of ignoring context. That could be a problem. And read the context of the verses that you are memorizing. Very important that we do memorization. So, we read systematically. We memorize key passages. 
Uh, remember in the early church and in the synagogue, they had to memorize because the texts were in the, in the ark. And so the only way you would get that would be to memorize it for yourself. The third one is meditation. There I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. By the way, another way to memorize, it says we're getting ready to do this. The Torah says that the king is supposed to write the Torah out in longhand in front of the priest to make sure he gets it right. And he's supposed to read it every day. Uh, I started this process. One of the reasons I have a lot of verses memorized is that when I was 17, I read that text, and I wrote out the entire New Testament in longhand. I had it in notebooks. And then I started the Old Testament. I would have made it through, but I, the genealogies, the census, and the Home Depot list for the tabernacle killed me, right? I should have avoided those and got the other ones written, but it just, it just became too much. But I'm amazed when you write it down how much you remember it, because as you write things, you have to keep saying them to yourself, and that it's really helpful to do that. So, meditation, chapter 1 of uh, Joshua, verse 8. He says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. And then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You can hear James. Then you will be blessed in what you do, right? So, what is it saying? I have to read it. How do I read it? I speak it with my mouth. I have to memorize it. How do I memorize it? I keep speaking it with my mouth. Once I've got that thing in there, why should I worry about it departing? Because we forget. We don't retain things. There are things you retain and there are things you don't retain. And so we have to do more than just memorize. Oh, I memorized that in fourth grade. Can you say it now? Nope. Because I haven't used it since fourth grade. So we have to come back and begin to focus on it again. And that's what uh, meditation is about. We, to meditate, he says, on this thing, you will meditate on it day and night. Okay? So, you can't meditate on what you haven't memorized. Okay? I know we've got people that think, oh, I read the text and then I meditate on it. No, you don't. You're thinking about it. It's not internalized yet. It's, you meditate on things, you ponder things in your heart that you know. Okay? So we're past memorization, now we're doing a, a rumination of the, of the text. We recall the Word of God and we consider it and we ponder it and we reflect on it and we think on it. How is it relevant in my life? How is it relevant to my mood? How is it relevant to my relationships and my situations? What wisdom can it provide me? Meditation involves going over the Scriptures in your mind. It involves thinking implicationally about truth and its claim on you. It ruminates the truth and implants it into the heart and the mind and the emotions of the soul. And he says you're to do it day and night. Well, day is something you're going to have to schedule. 
Because day is full of stuff. So you're going to have to set a time to take time to think about text, biblical texts that you know. Because what you're doing is, and you, you know how this works. Every time I go to the, uh, to the refrigerator and I'm looking for something that I use every day, somehow it has found its way to the back and it is hiding behind things that don't get used that often. Right? And so if I'm looking at it, trying to figure out it, I know it's there somewhere, but I don't know where it is. I have to bring it back to the front. Right? That's what meditation does. It brings this back to the front. It keeps this as a working knowledge of God's Word in our hearts. Because the day has a lot of pushes and pulls, you have to schedule time in the daytime. Now what about the night? And there are plenty of scriptures for this. I just don't have time to go over them. Uh, we all have times of restlessness and insomnia. And as you get older, those times become more frequent and more prolonged. Uh, these are the times when we should reflect on scripture. Not pick up your Bible and read it, but think on it. Don't grab your phone. Don't turn on the TV because I can't sleep. Think on scripture. David says, I meditate on your word on my bed. Okay? Take that time. Redeem that time. Thinking about the things. Now, I'll tell you what you can do. And you probably are very good at this. You can worry about everything you've got to do tomorrow. And that's really conducive to sleep. Right? Now you're all... The adrenaline kicks in and that. But if you reflect on the, on the Lord and you set your mind on Him... Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Right? There's a comfort and a peace that comes. I'm trying to do this because I wake up a few times in the night and then I'm trying to go to sleep and I start thinking about uh, changing my lectures or a sermon or an argument I had with somebody and then I get all riled up. That's not good. Uh, so I've been trying to do more of this. So we all have those times. Those are times to reflect on the scripture. We should be meditating on the word. It's also uh, an important part of hearing the words because we ask ourselves, what has God truly said? What does this text really mean? So schedule time to meditate on the scriptures that you already have memorized. And when you awake in the night, think on the scripture as you return to sleep so that you will sleep. Don't count sheep. Count verses, right? You do that kind of thing, right? Last one is study. Second Timothy chapter two. By the way, if you study before you do the other ones, if you don't do systematic reading and you don't do memorization and you don't do meditation, uh, your study is going to be an academic exercise in futility, not in development and growth. So I just wanted to say that. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And we all start at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Avoid worldly and empty chatter. It leads to further ungodliness. So he begins to talk about this thing. He said this idea of diligence here is translated in the King James Bible study. Study to show thyself approved. Okay, The implication of the verse is that you are studying it. You are accurately handling the word of God. It involves learning it correctly. 
And Paul warns Timothy that there are many false teachers and their ways must be avoided. Uh, so, diligence in handling the Word of God, uh, which he has already known, is important. So, look at chapter 3 of Second Timothy, uh, verse uh, 13. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from a child you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise, leading to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, because all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God, the person of God, may be adequately equipped for every good work. That's not telling preachers what to do. That's telling people of God what to do. So, to do this, first you need an accurate text. Okay, now the most accurate texts are right here on the pulpit. The Hebrew... Tanakh, and the Greek uh, New Testament. Okay? Now, that's one of the reasons why we're kind of pushing the kids to learn a little more than we do. That would be the ideal. But the second best is a well-translated English Bible. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the NASB is our official text in this congregation. We need an accurate text that represents the Greek and Hebrew in a clear and faithful English. Uh, but some knowledge of Hebrew and Greek is important because the Hebraic mindset and the accuracy of the words is critical. So these are the words that are, uh, are inspired. I uh, talked at, uh, at the conference last week about what we do. We bring out the Torah scroll. said this is the Torah. This is the gospel. Uh, and then we use our Bibles. These are translations. And I had a guy wait in line. He came up to me and he said, you should not say translation. And I said, why? He said, uh, uh, because people won't read it. Why? Because it's the words of men. So you have to call this the inspired word of God. I said, this is not the inspired word of God. This is the perspired word of God. We've worked very hard to get it as close as we can, hoping that God will help us. But it is not the same as the autographs and the, the original text. And he said, well, I don't, I don't agree. He said, my sister won't read the Bible because it's a translation. I said, then is she learning Greek and Hebrew? He said, no. I said, then she's lazy. You know, that's bad thinking. If it's the Word of God, we've got to get to it the best we can... And the best we can would be to learn the languages. We're not there. But we're going to get the best accurate translation we can for ourselves and for our children in that sense. Secondly, you have to follow the traditional understanding. Um, believers of the past, Jews and Christians, struggled with the meaning of these scriptures. The rabbis and the sages in Judaism and the church fathers and the reformers have to be consulted. There's been a conversation from early times about what these texts mean. They don't all agree. It's a conversation. They don't rise above the scriptures. The scriptures are the word of God. But we should be informed by those who have faithfully struggled with that. Uh, 
Because remember that the Spirit of God was in them as well as He is in us trying to illuminate us to the text. And then finally, the Scriptures are not about private interpretation. They are not what you get out of it. They're what we get out of it. So one of the reasons we have the Q&A after the service and, and have done that over the time is that we have to talk among ourselves about these things because we're addressing Scripture to situations that those in the past may not have had to deal with. And so we have the text. It is supreme. Then we have the conversation of those before us, which is informing. Why should we reinvent the wheel? But we also have to make sure that they were talking accurately. And then we have the community of faith presently to understand what's going on. Uh, and that is the study of the, of the word so that we will rightly divide it and understand it. Now, I'm just about done. Okay. Turn one more uh, text, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra is considered the second Moses in Judaism. Because it is Ezra who brought all the text together and put it in the form that began to be brought down in the lectionary format that was in full process uh, and, and use at the time of Yeshua or time of Jesus uh, when he came. Now Ezra, it says, uh, did this. Verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the Torah of the Lord and to practice it. And to teach his statutes and his ordinances in Israel. I want you to notice. It begins with a commitment in your heart to study. That means you're going to read it. That means you're going to memorize it. That means you're going to meditate on it. Right? And you're going to do it. He was going to practice it. I like the word practice. We're not doing it perfectly. We're struggling to do it. Then, and only then, can you teach it to others? we got a lot of people who want to hear somebody teach something. They like what they heard and then they teach it to someone else. That's just passing on rumors. You read the scriptures. You memorize the scriptures. You meditate on the scriptures. You do the scriptures. And that will sometimes make you go back realizing that you didn't get that right. And over time, you will begin to mature in the Word. And it will manifest. And then you can teach others. Uh, and that's really important for us as parents to be students of the Word, for our kids to be students of the Word. It's not good enough for us to just tell them to study it. So to do it, James told us in our initial text that only the doers of the Word are justified. A doer of the word has implanted in himself the scriptures and he will be blessed in what he's doing. And that includes the words that we speak because biblical behavior is what we think, what we speak, and what we do. And the religion that is obedience will give us holiness and righteousness in relationship to God and others. And then we teach because as doers of the word, we we teach others simply by them observing us. But also they will, give, they will ask a reason for why we live the way we live and we're able to teach them. And then, of course, we need to teach our children and our uh, converts. So, learning without doing is meaningless and is of no importance in the kingdom. 
But if we will read systematically, we will memorize the scriptures, we will meditate upon them, we will study them diligently and do them, and then we will have the maturity and the spiritual discipline to teach our children, our grandchildren, reinforce one another, and to uh, spiritually form our converts. And that spiritual discipline is absolutely critical. Memorization is at an all-time low in the church. And it shall not be among us. Let's pray.